If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark the first chapter again. The Bible contains the story of the world. It tells us the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of the living God. We saw last week how Mark worked so hard to root Jesus as deeply as he can in the ancient religion of Israel and the expectations of the Messiah, which means that Christianity, when it broke onto the scene, was not a completely new thing. As the fulfillment of all the longing and prophecies of the biblical prophets, Jesus is the one who will come not just to restore and regather repentant and believing Israel around himself, but in so doing will come to rule and renew the entire universe. And so human history is the story of a king who was crucified by us only to rise again and reign forever on behalf of his people. Every person that is on the earth today, that has ever been on the earth, that ever will be on the earth, every moment in time, every event, no matter how big or small, grand or mundane, finds its meaning, its purpose, and its goal in how it relates to this king. He is the hope that changes the world. Jesus Christ, in essence, has given the future back to humanity. Mark tells us his story. So I'll take a cue from R.C. Sproul here in his series on Mark. Imagine for a moment that you are a Christian living in first century Rome in this very moment. You've gathered with the rest of your congregation on Sunday, the Lord's Day, but you're not in a nice church building like this. The Emperor Nero has begun his mass persecution of Christians, and if the authorities find out that you're a believer, you're going to be arrested and you're going to die. So you and all your fellow believers are gathered in the catacombs underneath the city. You're surrounded by skeletons and cadavers. You're trying to sing and you're trying to listen to the word and pray and hope that you don't get caught. For the first five years of his reign, the Emperor Nero was actually pretty level-headed and calm. In AD 59, however, for some reason he began to change and he became known for what he is known historically, radically cruel, immoral, capricious. In the year 64 AD, a great fire destroyed most of Rome. It it actually destroyed about 80% of the city of Rome proper. Many people thought, still do, historians, that Nero himself had set the fire. So to deflect suspicion for that, he blamed it on this group of people called Christians. These followers of that Jewish guy they crucified some 30 years ago or so. And so the word that swept through the city, because this is what you do, you, you create sentiment against a group if you want to get rid of them. And so the, the anti-social, of course, the anti-religious, ironically, fanatics that didn't worship the emperor, weren't part of the imperial cult, that claimed that Jesus was their king, they are to blame for this fire. They hate Rome. They want Rome to burn down. So Nero sent out the Roman military to arrest, to find and arrest Christians wherever they could find them. And to be arrested was a death sentence. 
Some of our brothers and sisters, Nero, would clothe in the skins of wild animals, put them in a pit, and let feral dogs loose on them that would eat them because they thought they were wild animals. Other Christians, Nero, would dip in pitch or in tar, put them on poles, and light them on fire to illuminate his beautiful private gardens. And others, of course, we know of, more than others, would be brought into the Colosseum and fed to the lions for the crowds. Thankfully, these believers didn't suffer real persecution, right? Nobody was sitting in their pew when they got to church. No, nobody was making fun of them on late night TV. No, they didn't have to learn new songs on Sunday morning. I hear that's really tough for people to handle. So thankfully, they didn't have to deal with any of that. But it's most likely that in the immediate aftermath of the Great Fire in A.D. 65, that's when the first written record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ appeared, the Gospel of Mark that we have here. And the first audience of this book were those suffering Christians under Nero in Rome. Mark told them that Jesus was the true king of the world. He reminded them of their salvation in Jesus Christ, and he taught them about his suffering. So imagine that you're deep in the catacombs worshiping with a little group of other believers, but on this particular Sunday morning, the preaching elder has a new document, the newly written gospel of Mark, and you're about to hear the word of God in the first ever reading of this gospel. He doesn't identify himself in the book, but the author was John Mark, he was a partner in ministry with Paul and Barnabas before he was um, fired by the Apostle Paul, so to speak. He went on with Barnabas. Paul went on with Silas. Later, of course, we know that Mark and Paul were reconciled. But we know from particularly the fathers of the second century church that this gospel was directed mainly by the Apostle Peter, for whom Mark served as a kind of secretary or wrote down what he wanted him to. We, we don't know if it was written before Peter's death or shortly thereafter, but we uh, we know it has Peter's stamp of approval all over it. Mark is known for its brevity. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. It moves very fast. There are no details of Jesus' birth like there are in Matthew and Luke. So Mark is not really a biography. That's not really the genre that fits with it. Mark introduces Jesus as a fully grown man, beginning his God-ordained ministry, much like the introduction of Adam onto the scene in Creation. It's not a chronological account of Jesus' life like Matthew is. It's more of a summary of what Peter, who ministered right alongside Jesus, must have considered the most important work of Jesus. We'll see the word immediately or straightway 42 times in Mark. I think it's only used 12 other times total or 20 or so in the New Testament as a whole. But Mark wants to get down to business. He wants to give the major facts about Jesus and his life and ministry. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah and the Son of God. And so everything here in Mark is to prove the kingship of Jesus, including the event that is most crucial to Mark's gospel. It covers nine of its 16 chapters, if you consider not only the event, but the journey leading directly to it, and that's the cross where the king was crucified. What Mark is doing is revealing to us why his death in particular, matters to you and I and matters to everyone for all time. Yes, Israel's long-awaited Messiah has arrived on the scene, but he differs very much 
from Israel's expectations and his rule is not confined to a plot of land. It seems like he's pushing the very borders of the entire universe and his rule is not marked by military triumph, but by physical defeat and death. And yet the early church, for some reason, taking its cues from Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, every gospel was given a symbol of an animal. Marks is given the symbol of a fierce lion. Through his death, this Jesus will reign in glory and power over the entire cosmos. John the Baptist proclaimed that the king to whom Israel and the whole earth would bow was about to appear. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Please overcome my mind. Please consume me that his name might be proclaimed clearly, correctly, so that we might hear and believe what you've said to us, Father, in this book. We thank you for Mark. Guide us through this book, every verse, every word. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1. You remember from last week, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the thesis statement of the entire gospel. We are about to hear gospel, the good news. We know the four gospels, right, very well as the stories of Jesus. But what Mark introduced, this is the first one. What he introduced here is really an entirely new literary genre for the world. There's not anything like it, a genre that came to be known as gospel or a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, And John, the Greek New Testament didn't state the title as the Gospel of John, like it does in our Bibles, which is fine. What it said was, in Greek, kata iohanen, which means according to John. There was according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to Mark. That's all it said. We've come to understand that as the Gospel according to John, to Mark, right? The word Gospel is added because this genre was created, yes, as a biography, but as more to focus its attention on the person and the work of one person, Jesus Christ. So Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's saying a lot. Notice that Mark doesn't simply say he's presenting the gospel of Jesus. Why not? What he writes to us here drives us from the very beginning to the central confession of the book of Mark, which comes in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, when Jesus says to his disciples, you remember this, conversation, most of you, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're um, John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others still one of the prophets, but Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the source of this gospel, said what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This book is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, who is also the Son of of God. And right away, Mark locates the appearance of Jesus in the context of the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. As we saw last week, remember this, that because Mark had the benefit of God, having now revealed the mystery of his eternal plan, remember, he sees the whole Old Testament as the story of Jesus. And so he mixes three different Old Testament texts that foretold his coming, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Exodus 23, here in verses 2 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The Old Testament revealed that 
before the king arrived on the scene, God would send a herald to proclaim that God was returning to Israel and they needed to prepare the way. Isaiah said that every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The king is coming because the glory of the Lord was going to be revealed and all flesh was going to see it. Israel's heart was not ready for the return of God in their Messiah. They were still in exile from God, even though they're back in the land. And they needed to get themselves ready to receive him. That's what the ministry of John the Baptist was for, to prepare hearts in Israel for the arrival of the king through baptism. And when John the Baptist appeared, Israel was extremely excited or abuzz at the very least about his identity. Many believed he really was literally Elijah reappearing again in Israel. Even today, since Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah, when Jewish people gather for the Passover Seder, they'll leave an empty chair at the table. And if you ask them who it's for, it's for Elijah. They remember Malachi 4, 5. And God's promised that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will appear to proclaim his arrival. So in the first century, when John the Baptist appeared out of the wilderness, like a prophet does, and started preaching after 400 years of silence with no prophet from God, you can imagine the interest that would create. The first question the Jewish authorities asked John the Baptist was, are you Elijah? In John 1, 19 and 21, he said, no, I'm not. But when they asked Jesus who he was in Matthew 17, 12 and 13, Jesus says that he was Elijah. So what do we make of that? Which is it? Luke 1, 17 tells us that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus affirmed that the ministry of Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist. So The prophecy was not that Elijah himself would come back. It's that John ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah. By the way, that's a clue on how we might need to read biblical prophecy. It often doesn't mean what it says, but it always means what it means. John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The traditional meeting place of God and his prophets in the Old Testament was always the wilderness. Moses saw the burning bush in the wilderness. God called a nation to himself after he delivered them from Egypt in the wilderness. Elijah was ministered to by ravens in the wilderness. And the New Testament begins with a strange figure looking like Elijah, reminding people of him coming out of the wilderness to proclaim that God himself in the person of the Messiah was about to return to Israel. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He was an instant celebrity. He told the people to get ready for the arrival of Messiah. He told them to be cleansed of their sins, which is symbolized in their baptism, where they're washed clean. Mark doesn't really speak of it too much, but when John the Baptist started baptizing Israelites, the Pharisees, the ones who thought they had the authority, the religious authority in Israel, they were extremely concerned. Extremely concerned. They said that the Israelites were children of Abraham. They were the chosen people of God. They don't need to get clean. The Gentiles need to get clean, not Israel. So the controversy begins right away 
between who the Bible says are God's messengers and the messengers of Israel. And it sets the stage of John's baptism of Jesus himself, which we'll be able to talk about more next week. But we get a short description of what John the Baptist was like in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. In other words, John the Baptist was the classic prophet. You knew what he was when you saw him, when you heard him. So weird, so loud, right? But on such men, God imparted his very word. And this prophet spoke a word that made Jesus say of him in Matthew, that among those born of women until that time, there had been none greater than John the Baptist. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say about you. What made him so great? He's, he's the last prophet of the Old Testament era whose task it is to prepare for the long-awaited arrival of Jesus. And as that, Jesus called him the greatest human being that had ever lived until that moment. And he said things like this in verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What a privilege it would have been to be the last voice of the Old Testament era that got to pronounce the arrival of the Messiah. In Israel at that time, everybody wore sandals. That was your choice. If you went into a shoe store, if they had cobblers, I don't know. Hi, would you like to try some of our sandals? And over here, there's some sandals. And if you want, I can go in the back and pull out some sandals for you. That's all they had. Everybody wore sandals. So even if you were an aristocrat living in the desert, made your feet dirty, right? But aristocrats didn't remove their own sandals. That was, of course, beneath them. They Their hands could not get dirty. So they had their slaves do this extremely menial task. Usually their lowest slaves because it's such a low thing to do. And John the Baptist says that task reserved for the lowest slaves, was too high a privilege for him to perform on the one that was coming after him. He was constantly trying to deflect, focus on himself to the one he is pointing to. I baptize you with water. I'm getting you ready for him. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew says, and fire. The ministry of John the Baptist was one of proclamation that the king was coming. God in human flesh as the Messiah and people needed to prepare for the arrival of the one who would bring the promised Holy Spirit and restore his people to himself. So John is constantly saying, don't get excited about me. You haven't seen anything yet. Your Messiah is coming. The king promised that David is coming. God himself is returning to Israel. Matthew quotes John as saying in Matthew 3.10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, meaning it wouldn't be long, John the Baptist was saying. His arrival was just around the corner. The kingdom was about to break into our world. Now imagine hearing that about your Savior, that that's who he was as you huddled with other believers trying to keep it quiet down in the catacombs. It wouldn't seem like he was all that great or powerful considering where you were and what you were doing. It's very possible that you would soon be found out. You you couldn't hide for very long, probably. And because of your faith in this Jesus, this person you've heard 
provides cleansing for sins and salvation from God because you believe in Him and worship Him, the way your life might end is that you'll get eaten alive by feral dogs. Or you'll get dipped in tar and set on fire. Just picture that in your mind. Let it sit for a minute. Or you'll be thrown to the lions while people cheer. How did the Word of God prepare His people to face such things? A story. A story. A story that reminded you, oh, by the way, Nero is nothing when you set him against the backdrop of a much greater ruler, a cosmic one. And that ruler suffered death, just like you might. But that's not where his story ends. Which means that's not where it will end for those who believe in him either. Beloved, we don't worship a memorial this morning. We don't simply remember Jesus and agree with him and like him. We've not gathered merely to remember what once was so that our religion is nothing more than spiritual nostalgia. Memories fade. We lose interest in memorials, as important as they may be. They serve really only to make us remember something that is gone now, that we can't have back. We can talk only about the spirit of what we remember remaining. That's really all that can remain, just a sense of feeling or of honor or respect or remembrance. That's not how God ministered peace to his people, with sentiment, but with the reminder that the one who was crucified was the Messiah and King whom God raised from the dead in power and glory, that those who die in the Lord live, that those who run to Jesus for mercy and grace and salvation live, no matter what happens to them. This is the gospel that says Jesus is the hope of the world, of every human being, that death is not the end of our story, that our sins and trespasses and iniquities and stains can be washed away, that our debt can be clear that God's wrath has been satisfied, that he will return us to paradise. Jesus talks like that's the thing that matters the most in all reality. And there are certainly huge differences between the first century and today. But ultimately, we share the same world because we share the same death sentence. Every one out of one human being dies. The mortality rate of humanity is still 100%. No matter how it happens or when it happens. Nobody's getting out of here alive. So at any given moment, for every human being, no one is more relevant than Jesus. Nothing is more necessary than the gospel. Mark says the Son of Man has come. 
And it's time to announce his gospel to the ends of the earth. No matter our fear, no matter the consequences, he is life. And we know it. And we have the story. It's always going to be this way. And if it isn't this way, it will be that way in the future. This is the story all humankind has to hear. And the cost doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you don't matter. You are very precious to Jesus. But Jesus knows that something resides for you after death. And so his call to us is to proclaim this, not another message. You see that? There's no mixing of messages here. This is the gospel. That's what we're about. This is what we proclaim. In the prologue to his gospel, very interestingly here, Mark points is right. John does the same thing. The first sentence, they have this word, the beginning. That's a word that if you read the Bible at all, reminds you of creation. And the opening sequence of all scripture, which is also the record of the beginning of humanity, of the earth, of creation, period. And in Mark 1, just as at the creation, the triune Godhead is present. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do we find in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel? We know in Genesis that the creation of the world was the project of the Trinity. Now we find that the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things, that began with the arrival of the King, is also the project of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all here at the beginning to introduce this as it breaks upon the world. The zeal of God Almighty is bringing this about. He has been waiting to reveal this mystery since before he made the world. And now, finally, in this moment, in first century Palestine, he will move heaven and earth to do it. And he will do it with a proclamation. He is coming. You and I live after the coming. We are like the Christians in Rome. And I know it's not like that today. But, beloved, do understand For a long time, the tide has been turning very subtly. Now it's turning very quickly. Sentiment about us. Beloved, hear those things. Remember those things. Because God's means of delivering you from them in your heart, because he may or may not deliver you from the actual death, is the same story it was for them. John the Baptist proclaimed that the king to whom Israel and the whole earth would bow was about to appear. We proclaim that he has. Beloved, God himself has come near. He's come near to us. Mark was written to persuade us that this crucified king is our only hope of life and salvation. And so throughout this book, he'll heal people. Not everybody. Jesus didn't heal everybody in the world. Jesus didn't eradicate poverty. Spoke very little about it. He didn't eradicate all suffering. He didn't make death go away yet. But he'll heal people. He'll provide food. He'll cast out demons. They'll be terrified of him. 
He'll preach and teach like he has in Mark, all throughout Mark, this thing they call authority. And he'll die and he'll rise again. And all of it, all of it is an offering to God on our behalf so that we will never be on the hook for our own salvation. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of the King of heaven and earth. Your King. My King. Our Savior. Never stop crying out to Jesus. Never stop believing this story. Let me pray. Father, I ask that your word would remain in the hearts of your people. I pray that the hope you meant to give us in telling us the story of your son would abide in us and remain by the power of your Holy Spirit as he continues to open the word to us and teach us about your son and bear witness with our spirits that we who believe belong to you forever. And Lord, I pray for those who hear this story and Jesus is a stranger to them. He is not a savior for them. They don't know what to make of him or are convinced that he's not for them. Father, would you give life to them? Raise their dead soul from the grave of spiritual death and blindness. Give them life that they might believe in your son and be saved. May they know, Father, that the more they talk about how they aren't worthy to come, the more they describe themselves as exactly who Jesus came for in the first place. May all of us remember that we never stop being people that need you more than anything. No matter where we are, who we are, what we do, where we go, each one of us alike needs your son completely to save us. So let us believe his story. Let us believe your word. I ask and pray for these things in the grace and peace of your people in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.